If you follow me on Facebook, you saw a picture of my husband face down on the floor yesterday. That happened right after he read my final draft of my teaching, so I'm a little nervous about this. It got very quiet all of a sudden in the house. I thought, he's so entranced by what I wrote. He can hardly even move. And then I went into the living room and he was asleep. So let's hope I can keep you guys awake. So like Tim and Jeff said, the Apostle Paul writes his most joyful letter from a jail cell. Would you? Would you be able to write a letter filled with joy and encouragement in Christ if you were in prison? In his opening section of his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul writes these words. He says, whatever happens, you know, and he's thinking, a.k.a. if you get put in prison for your faith, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as we walk through this season of Lent and head toward the cross, And then the celebration, the empty tomb of Easter, we're going to spend four weeks teaching all four chapters, or something from all four chapters in this letter. And so like Jeff said, we encourage you to follow along on our daily scripture, or you can, you know, pick up the Bible yourself and read the whole uh, book of Philippians in 20 minutes. Um, and I believe you'll be richly blessed. The, the, the m- m- huge point that Paul's trying to get across to this young church is that whatever happens, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean to conduct yourself in such a way that your life appears to be worthy of the gospel? Well, here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that we can earn our own salvation if we just live right. It does not say conduct yourselves in a manner so that you will earn your own forgiveness because you're such a good person. We want to make uh, sure we're very clear about that. But what Paul seems to be saying, you know, one way of looking at it is that he's saying to these young Christians in this early church, whatever happens to you, I want you to live a life that demonstrates to those watching what is of greatest worth to you. Live in such a way that people will know what is of greatest worth to you. What is of greatest worth to you? It's a good question to ask yourself sometimes. Paul tells his readers right away what is of highest worth to him. You can't get through the first few sentences without knowing that it's Jesus. Jesus is of highest worth to Paul and it influences every part of his life. That is why this letter from prison is his most joyful. And it's why Paul can write at the very end of the first chapter of Philippians these words that we're going to think about this morning. He says in in Philippians 1, verse 29, For it has been granted to you, like this has been given to you, on behalf of Christ. So on behalf of Christ, this has been given to you, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. He goes on in chapter 3 of Philippians. Doug's going to be here in a couple weeks to teach about chapter 3. But he goes on in chapter 3 to say this. I'm starting with verse 10. This is Paul's deepest desire. He said, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection 
and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Really, Paul? And to somehow attaining, and somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I want to talk to you this morning about suffering and what Paul calls the privilege, the power of participating in suffering with and for Jesus. And I want to talk about suffering knowing full well that in this room there are people like me who've recently experienced what I want to call small s suffering, minor suffering. I want to be careful about how I say that. And also people in this room who are experiencing or have experienced what I call capital S suffering. But this teaching comes out of my own story this morning of a small s suffering. So this fall, I hit what I like to call a speed bump in my life. I don't know if you describe things in your life that way, the details of which I will spare you. But I went through what was for me a bit of a dark time. And it was partly emotional, it was partly spiritual, it was partly physical. And it was filled with just some uncertainty about the future and some waiting that felt really hard, some days impossible. And that time of waiting was then followed by some chronic pain. I mean, it's just, you know, as if there's just one more thing after another and medical confusion. And it just left me drained and exhausted. I was experiencing more small S suffering for a longer chunk of time than I was interested in, as if I had a choice. And it tested me. I mean, it really did. But as I was going through it, I was so painfully aware that what I was experiencing was nothing compared to what so many of you and so many of the people in our congregation are going through or have gone through. I mean, some of you have buried parents or spouses or children. Some of you have health issues that would take down the strongest. Some of you have broken relationships and broken vows and broken hearts and broken dreams and broken homes and pain that doesn't end. I see it. I see you. Two things are true about suffering. The first is that we'll all face it. Eugene Peterson said that to be human is to be in trouble. Is this not true? And the second truth is that suffering, the why and the wherefore of it, is a mystery. If anyone tells you it is not a mystery, walk away briskly. I don't have it all figured out in any way. But what I have this morning is my own story and the scriptures. So here goes. At first, when I started to hit this speed bump, the first thing I did was I just lamented. I just lamented. I didn't realize as I was lamenting I was doing anything biblical. I just thought I was being a baby. But to lament, get this, to lament is biblical. The word lament is from a French and Latin root, and it means weeping and wailing. I'm pretty good at weeping and wailing. And I bet some of you are too. I prefer, however, to call it God-centered whining. It just has a better ring to it. 
But it sounds like this. God, I don't want to be here. I don't want to go through this. Here's my favorite. Here's my favorite one. God, now's not a good time. Right as if he's going to check his calendar and get back to me. Where are you, God? How long are you going to let me suffer? How come? Why have you turned your face from me? Why, when I need you the most, does it seem like you're farthest away? Save me. It sounds wrong, doesn't it? It sounds unspiritual. These questions, this weeping and wailing, sounds like an expression of doubt and a lack of faith. But it is not. The scriptures demonstrate to us that to lament, to weep and to wail, to engage in God-directed whining is actually a legitimate form of prayer. It is a powerful way of reaching out to God. And the key to it is to complain to God and not about God. Okay, it's to complain to God and not about God. And this is best modeled in the Psalms. You've heard me talk about this before. The Psalms are filled with the words of real people crying out with real pain from their real hearts, with real questions to God. And it is an art form. It is what some people call the painful poetry of faith. So if I were to bring my journal to church, which I will never do, for fear that I will leave it in the ladies' restroom, and it will go public, and you'll all realize I'm as crazy as I sometimes appear. But if you were to read it, you would see that this fall was filled with um, the writings of David in Psalm 13. And so what I would do is I would sit with Psalm 13, I would read the first part of the psalm, I would write it down in my journal, and then I would just pray everything in my heart that had to do with that verse. So, so David starts Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? And I just wrote and wrote and wrote to God about how I felt that way. How long will you hide your face from me? I had a lot to say to God about that. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Six pages I wrote. The Psalms are a perfect place to go. If you want to lament, but you don't have the words for it, they'll give them to you. So capital S, small s, whatever you're suffering, don't be afraid to lament. The next thing I did was I reached out. Because suffering and being in pain and hurting can isolate us and it can drive us away from others. But don't let it do that. And don't try to hide it. People tell me I couldn't hide that I was suffering if you put a bag over my head. I mean, I just have this kind of face that just shows people what I'm feeling. People are now giving this kind of face a description. They're calling it the overly expressive face disorder. 
This is actually kind of the poster face of this disorder. So just to give you a quick example, a long time ago, a guy was describing to me what he thought the mission of God in the world was. And as he went on and on and on, I started to think, well, this sounds like a science fiction movie. And uh, I was trying so hard to just have this face as I was listening. But after a while, he just stopped and he was looking at me and he said, you're looking at me like you think I'm crazy. Because I'm sure I was like... And then I was, and then I went back to this, and I, but in my head I'm thinking, you, you are crazy. You are. Anyway, my point is, you can take her down. When you're suffering, don't, don't try to hide it. Don't try to hide from people. Reach out, but do so wisely. Again, Eugene Peterson says, when we suffer, we attract counselors, as money attracts thieves. Or as we might say in Iowa, when we suffer, we attract counselors as a cow pie attracts horse flies. I kind of thought that had a nice ring to it. When we're suffering, like Job's miserable comforters, people abound who love. They would love nothing more than to tell us in a long-winded speech why God has allowed us to suffer or be in pain. They love to tell us what we need to do to make it right. Or to pray in just a right secret way to make God fix our lives. No. When you are suffering, pick your counselors wisely. Find people, this is what I did, who have suffered themselves. I reached out to people who I knew would listen, listen, listen to me. And then with extreme gentleness... And without cheesy, syrupy, irritating Christian cliches, can you tell how I feel about that, would help turn my face back toward my father. And they would remind me of his faithfulness. Find those people. I lamented. I reached out. And once I got my feet back under me, I sought God's wisdom. I started to ask God, What do you want to teach me? What are you wanting me to notice, to pay special attention to? What do you want me to learn? And he started to teach me some things. First thing he reminded me of is that suffering teaches us that we are weak. Suffering reminds me that I am weak, like almost nothing else can. God doesn't forget FYI, that we are weak. In Psalm 103, which is um, from where we get our Ash Wednesday uh, verse that we say over people when we put the cross on your forehead, Psalm 103 tells us that God has compassion on us for he knows how we are formed and he remembers, he remembers that we are dust. And it is good for us sometimes to remember this too. Paul The great apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians verse 11, if I must boast, if I'm going to brag about anything, he says, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And I know in this era of all the political debates, the world bashes people who show their weakness. But we Christians need to not be afraid to acknowledge that we are weak And we are dependent. 
and experiencing those kinds of moments when we, we can't hide our own weakness. We feel our dependence so clearly are so critical in the Christian life. It was the Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard who said, man's supreme perfection is to be in need of God. And we never feel more in need of God than when we are weak and when we are in pain and when we're suffering. Which leads me to the next thing that God taught me and that God can teach us. And that is that if suffering reminds me of my weakness, suffering makes God strong in me. Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, he's writing about this suffering, this pain, this something he calls a thorn in his flesh that God won't remove from him. And he's writing about it. And this is what he says. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on. Therefore, here's this boasting idea again. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. Christ's power may rest on me. That is why. For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When we are weak, then God is strong in us. Does that happen like magic? Does it happen like this? Maybe it does for some people, but never for me. I feel my weakness. I acknowledge my weakness to God. And I believe because the scripture tells me that when I do that, Christ's strength rests on me. But I don't always feel it right away. And so I'm the one who has to get up every day, every day, and put one foot in front of the other, just like all of you do when you're suffering. God doesn't do that part for us. But what I discover slowly over time as I'm putting one foot in front of the other, is that my feet become stronger in ways I didn't fully understand. And as the weeks went on, I figure out I didn't stumble. And so I can start to look back, and I can look back now, and I can say, I don't know how I got through that. And then I recognize the power of Christ resting on me in my weakness. When I am weak then I am strong. Third thing I learned was that suffering can deepen my relationship with Jesus. One of the prayers I prayed, aside from, help me, it's an awesome prayer if you ever need to use it, okay? I'll let you borrow it. Um, The other prayer I prayed was, Jesus, help me to know you more deeply in this, in this experience. And God started to show me that for some reason, The Bible paints suffering. It presents suffering for and with Jesus as a privilege. 
It certainly doesn't feel like a privilege, does it? Like, thank you very much for this privilege. Suffering stinks. But here's the truth that is incredibly profound. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. Hebrews 2 verse 18. Because he himself, Jesus himself, was tested by what he suffered. Because of that, he is able to help those who are being tested. Implication, by what they're suffering. And so just in this Lenten season, do you remember what he suffered? Jesus, God incarnate. He was weary. He was tempted. He experienced sorrow and grief. He was troubled in heart. He begged his father to take the cup of suffering from him. He prayed at time with tears and loud cries. Jesus lamented. He was misunderstood by those he most loved. He was rejected by his friends. He had his body nailed to a tree. Because of his suffering, he helps us. Peter, the disciple of Jesus who would be crucified upside down for his faith, warns us not to be surprised when trouble comes. This is what he says, 1 Peter 4, verse 13. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, somehow our sufferings bind us with Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. When we suffer, Jesus is present with us in our lives in a way unlike any other time. Our sufferings, in a mysterious way I don't understand, become his. And his become ours. And if you're like me, you're thinking, that's really nice, Alice. That's a nice concept. But what does it look like on a Tuesday afternoon when I'm hurting? Best description I have ever read comes from a man named David Benner. I must have read this a million times this fall. This is what he says about suffering. He says, what we want to do when we suffer is either fight against the suffering or ignore it. And what Jesus asks is something quite different. He asks us to take up, he asks us to take up our cross. And taking up our cross is not about choosing whether to suffer or not. That choice is not ours. But we get to choose to acknowledge the suffering rather than to ignore it. And while holding it, whatever that suffering, that pain is in your life, while holding it, Benner says, we can choose to look toward God. And if we do, we discover God is looking toward us. We can allow suffering to be a place of meeting God. For no matter how great your suffering may be, God has suffered from it first. Suffering, if we allow it, can deepen our relationship with Jesus. Suffering can also serve the good purposes of God. Almost everything I've ever learned of any value has come to me during times of struggle. I wish that weren't so. I wish I learned the best truths of my life when I was on a cruise. But alas, no luck. 
So when I was young, I was a competitive swimmer, and very often my dad was my coach. And my dad pushed me to work hard and to compete. And sometimes as a young girl, I was scared and I was tired and I didn't want to do it. And so during some of my swim practices, when I was so tired, maybe we were at the end of a really hard practice or I was just out of juice and wanting to give up, my dad would lean down over me in that swimming pool and he would say to me, Alice, pain is a part of life. And I so wanted to say, apparently it's part of my life, but not yours. I didn't do that, though. I respected my dad. He kept going. He's like, you can do this. You have to understand that pushing through this pain as an athlete is what will make you strong. And I hated it back then. But he knew more than I did. Shock of the century, right, parents? See, because now I understand what he was doing. Just like my heavenly father... My dad was saying to me, you need to learn to feel pain. You need to learn to hurt, to be afraid, to lose, to suffer. You need to learn to do those things without crumbling. For those things will come to you. My dad was thinking, not just in swim practice, Alice, but in your life. And that's why I'm not going to protect you from them. I don't allow you to feel suffering because I don't love you. It's actually because I do love you. And I want you to know that you can hold up when it gets hard. And it's only as you face your weakness that you can do that. And I know now what I didn't know back then. My dad pushed me into hard things so that when I was older and no longer just a little girl in a swimming pool, but an adult who would face hard things in life, when I was older and suffering came, my dad wanted me to know I could hold up under pressure, that I would not crumble at the first touch of pain in my life. Parents, this is why we should not overprotect our children from the hard knocks of life. My dad was preparing me for something ahead that I could not yet see, something called real life. And he wanted to make me resilient. And God wants to make us resilient too, not only for this life, but for all eternity. And last thing that God reminded me of is that he will redeem any suffering any of us go through now. This is the hope of the Christian faith. The word suffering and the word glory appear together in scripture all the time. Jesus' suffering was his greatest moment of glory. And his suffering was in no way wasted, even though through worldly eyes, his death on a cross at 33 seemed like a colossal waste. And our suffering too will never be wasted. Somehow, even though we can't see it now, our suffering too is connected with glory. Both God's glory in us, but also the shared glory we will experience with him on that final day. Do you remember my teaching about glory when I defined the word as brilliance and power and weightiness and density, realness? That's what we have to look forward to. Listen to what Paul writes to the church at Rome. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing 
with the glory that will be revealed in us. And again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our bodies are going to crumble, he says. Yet inwardly, we are renewed day by day. Why? Because he said, for this light momentary troubles are achieving for us. They're achieving it for us. An eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Oh, my friends, all the suffering... All the pain, all the trials we go through will not only end when Christ returns, but that suffering will result in a level of glory for us that our minds can't even comprehend. Any of us who have suffered here on this earth will become, precisely because of that suffering, eternal heavyweights. I mean, look around you. Some of the people in this room will be the sumo wrestlers of heaven, my friends. The band likes that joke. Nobody out here likes that joke, but the band does, so I brought it back. C.S. Lewis has this book called The Great Divorce where he contrasts two eternal destinations. And he shares a conversation a man is having with, with someone who hasn't yet made it to heaven. And he says this to the man. He says, son... You cannot, in your present state, understand eternity. That is what mortals misunderstand. He says, they say of some temporary earthly suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Nothing that God will bring in eternity can make up for my suffering. But they only say that, he says, not knowing that in heaven, once you attain it, it will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. This is the hope of heaven, where things will work backwards and turn even our most painful suffering into glory. This is why Paul could write his most joyful letter from prison, because he knew this truth. Listen, I hate pain. I hate suffering. I do. I don't want to be sad or feel loss or face darkness. And I know none of you do either. But suffering, for some reason we don't understand, is the very heartbeat of our faith. It is how God redeemed the world. And so to be human is to be in trouble. And I don't know all the reasons why, but God does. God does. And that is all that matters. He understands, he sees, he knows, he suffers, and he is with you. This I know with all my heart. It was Corrie Ten Boom who spent time in the darkness of a German concentration camp who said this. She said, no matter how deep our darkness, he is deeper still. This is the hope of our faith. We're going to move now into a time of communion. Like Jeff talked about, this perfect opportunity to be reminded that Jesus' greatest moment of suffering was also the world's most glorious moment of redemption. Suffering turned into glory. This is God's specialty. And so as we now take a moment to take the bread and remember Jesus' body broken and to drink the cup and remember his blood shed for us, will you... 
hold your own suffering and turn your face to God and notice through the, the, the bread and the wine that he is with you. He's looking right at you and he loves you. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, as he was with his disciples in the upper room, he took the Passover bread and he gave thanks to his father for it and then he broke it. And he said to his confused disciples, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in memory of me. And in the same way, he took the cup filled with the Passover wine. And he said to them, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Drink this in remembrance of me. And we're obediently doing that this morning. Let's pray. God, we so forget that suffering is at the heart of our faith. We wish something else was there. But in some mysterious way that we don't understand, you promise to redeem it. And you sometimes allow it in our lives for reasons we can't comprehend, but that we know have to do with love. And so, God, help us as we suffer to turn our face toward you, knowing your face is turned toward us. Help us to comfort and encourage each other in suffering. And, oh, God, help us to remember that no moment of suffering, no matter how deep, is ever wasted and will somehow be turned into glory for all of eternity. Thank you that you are this kind of God. And thank you that you love us. Amen.